Labor Day weekend, as you know, and John kind of hinted at this with the, some of you who've started school, some of you who are, it's the end of summer. It's the official end of summer. And as we're saying goodbye to summer, and it went by fast for me, I don't know about you, and as we say hello to the fall, we begin a new sermon series. And that sermon series is on the book of Daniel. And I don't know how familiar you are with the book of Daniel, if you've ever read it or haven't read it in a while, but if you open up to it on your phone or the Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible that you brought, this is a story that actually begins at the end of another story. The book of Daniel begins at the end of another story. It begins with the rise, at the end of the rise and fall of ancient Israel as a nation. And the beginning of the end of this story was actually centuries earlier. Israel's great king Solomon had died, and his heir, his son, Rehoboam, had foolishly provoked the leaders of the northern part of the nation, and they eventually split off from the south, and civil war ensued. The northern tribes, 10 of them, called themselves Israel, and they stood opposed to the southern tribes, two of them, who called themselves Judah. Now, a divided nation was easily picked apart by other rival world powers. The Assyrians eventually overtook and destroyed the northern kingdom, Israel, and Judah, the southern, was at first spared this outcome until the rise of the Babylonians. And that brings us to the book of Daniel. As the book of Daniel begins, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, his time has come. And Judah, as the last vestige of Israel's nationhood, Judah's time has run out. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord from Daniel chapter 1. And I'm going to read the whole thing. So here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasury house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Haniah, Mishael, and Azrai, Azriah. Excuse me. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name... Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told David, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. David then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than all the young men who ate the food. 
So the guard who took away their choice the, so the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, there are three things that I want us to focus on. This morning. Three things. First, I want us to appreciate Israel's situation here. Second, I want us to learn from Daniel's response. And third, as a result, I want to, uh, us to better appreciate our calling as followers of Jesus. So let's begin by appreciating Israel's situation. This book of Daniel begins what is known as the Babylonian exile. And it was, at the time, perhaps the greatest crisis the people of Israel had ever faced. From a macro, a big picture perspective, Israel is no more. Nebuchadnezzar, as you read, the king of Babylon has conquered the once holy and impenetrable city of Jerusalem. The walls of the city are forever breached. Judah's king is deposed, and as that happens, Nebuchadnezzar seeks to make not just a political statement, but a religious one as well. Again, as you read, Nebuchadnezzar plunders the temple of the Lord. All of its sacred and priceless treasures are seized and used to decorate the house of the Babylonian god. Think about that. Losing your home, your land, your temple, your way of life. For Israel, it meant the loss of her identity as a people. And added to this, it doesn't stop here, added to this, the best and brightest of Israel's future generations are carried off to be raised as citizens and leaders of a new world order. A nation that doesn't bow, a nation that openly defies the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Think about losing your sons and daughters. Think about losing your sons and daughters, having them grow up, learning to call a pagan and foreign nation their home. For Israel, it meant the loss of their heritage, the loss of their history, the loss of their traditions, and therefore the loss of their future. This is the micro, the big picture perspective, but as we also get the, the opportunity to see it on a micro, a personal level, things don't get much better. Daniel and his friends were torn from their land and taken to Babylon as young men. Most likely when they were taken, they were 12 to 14 years old. Think about that. 12 to 14 years old. They faced the emotional trauma of being forever separated from their families. The four of them also experienced together the overwhelming disorientation of being thrown into a strange and unfamiliar world. Think about it. Everything was new. New language, new customs, new beliefs, new laws. And the stress of their learning curve, as you also heard, was heightened because of their appeal to King Nebuchadnezzar. Born of royalty, possessing the right looks, as well as the preferred intellectual qualities, Daniel and his friends are immediately enrolled in a three-year advanced cultural immersion program. This is no act of benevolence by Nebuchadnezzar. It's politics. It's the propaganda of assimilation. An expanding empire means an expanding bureaucracy. And the best way to keep things running smoothly is to turn outsiders into insiders. 
specifically to indoctrinate the young. Once the youth are so conditioned, the rest of Israel will follow, even if it takes a few generations. So the pressure to conform, to let alone make the grade for Daniel and his friends was enormous. At both a national and an individual level, everything seems to have fallen apart. But what I also want you to see, stepping back even further, is all these changes, these losses, have implications that are greater than any one nation or one individual. What we need to understand in the context in which this is being written, this is a global crisis affecting the future of all humanity. Because with the destruction and exile of Israel, it looks like God's covenant, his original promise to Abraham, reinforced through Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon has failed. Because without Israel, with no visible kingdom, with no king of their own, with no political or religious autonomy, God's assurance to save, to redeem, to reconcile and restore the world would appear to have been broken. Because it was to come through Israel, and there is no Israel. I said I wanted us to start by appreciating Israel's situation because I think we can relate to it more than we would like to admit. What do we do when we lose everything? What do you do when it all falls apart? Being in exile is an experience we can all relate to at some point in our lives. On a macro level, I think we can relate to it right now as the church, as the body of Christ, as the church, at least in the Western world, we are in exile. We find ourselves as followers of Jesus being more and more displaced, more and more marginalized, more and more living away from what's familiar, from what we once knew. Times and circumstances have changed. You know this, and if you don't, wake up. The church is not at the center of the conversation anymore. The church is not at the center of the conversation either locally or globally. It is no longer an entity around which neighborhoods and communities are built. As an institution, as a movement, as a presence, we suddenly find ourselves moved aside, deemed less and less relevant to the wider culture around us. More and more people aren't going to church. More and more people aren't even affiliated with the church. And instead are increasingly devoted not just to someone other than Jesus, but even to something other than religion. The sense of community, the building of relationships that we used to take for granted that happened within a church community or a religious community, people are finding their community and building their relationships and maintaining them in a different sanctuary, in places like Starbucks. Education and the formation of morals and values and goals are derived from other scriptures more and more, from TED Talks and self-help books. Acts of charity and service are no longer offered in gratitude at the altar to God. But acts of charity and service are driven now more by a social or political cause and not necessarily expressed as a matter of religious faith. Beloved, how do we live in a world that is increasingly antagonistic or completely indifferent to our beliefs, our traditions, our practices, our aspirations? We can feel like exiles on this big picture level, but just as we see in Daniel, we can also find ourselves relating to the experience of exile on a personal level too. Personally, exile is when the bottom falls out. Exile is when your life just collapses, you know? 
when your life just collapses. Maybe we're experiencing exile on that personal level because our health has collapsed. Or the health of someone we love has collapsed and we find ourselves living in a different world. That's what it's like, right? A different world. Different world than everyone else. You know, that disorienting and repetitive space of appointments and scans and tests and hospitals and treatments. Maybe your exile is related to where you work, where you spend the majority of your time. Maybe the company that you work for has been sold or has been downsized. And whether you've been kept on or whether you've been let go from where you've worked all these years, you find yourself suddenly in a job that's changed in a new situation where you're thrust into the overwhelming demands of learning a new culture, new lingos, new policies and procedures. And if you're at a job where where you've been all that time and it's been downsized, people are gone who you used to work with, you used to rely on. And if you're at a new job, you're around people you don't know, that it's all new. Maybe your exile is one of a relationship. Maybe your exile is one that is a relationship that's changed due to some distance. Geographical distance, emotional distance, something else. You know, we thought we knew him or her, but it's like they're a different person all of a sudden. Someone we don't recognize or understand. Every encounter with them now seems foreign and strange. Every conversation just gets more and more awkward. And just like that, we're not close anymore. We're on the outside of their lives looking in, and they've moved on. Beloved, circumstances change. Things can suddenly get turned upside down. Sometimes life just collapses. We can appreciate Israel's situation because we all find ourselves in a state of exile at some point in our lives. The question is, what do we do when that moment comes? How do we respond when our world falls apart? And so the second thing I want us to see in this first chapter, I want us to turn and learn from Daniel's response to his experience of exile. Daniel, I think we can all agree, had a couple of choices here. Daniel had a couple of choices in the midst of everything that's happening. And the choices that he had in the midst of living in exile are the same ones we have. Daniel could have given up. Daniel could have given up. He could have chosen to remain trapped by fear, right? Fear of the unknown, dreading each day. You know what I'm talking about? Waking up with that pit in his stomach and just ultimately succumbing to a fatalistic outlook in terms of his future. Daniel could have given up. Daniel could have given in. He could have chosen to make things easier for himself, you know, just throw up his hands and just follow in the direction the wind was blowing at that moment. All right, I'm a company man for Babylon now, whatever. All right, that's where the gravy train is. Daniel could have given in. Daniel could have withdrawn. Daniel could have chosen to practice his faith in isolation, you know, praying in his closet. On the surface, Daniel could have been looking like he was living the life of Babylon, Babylonian power and influence, while actually retreating and being true to himself and his faith within the privacy of his own personal space. Daniel could have given up. Daniel could have given in. Daniel could have withdrawn. Give up, give in, withdraw. Aren't these the same choices we're faced with? The same decisions we can make living in exile? Aren't these the same choices we are often making when we find ourselves living in exile? Give up, give in, withdraw. 
But what we see here by the grace of God is Daniel refuses to make any of these choices. Daniel, we see here, believes God was in control despite all appearances to the contrary. I say that. How can I know that? How can I know that Daniel believed that God was in control despite all appearances to the contrary? I know this because Daniel tells us so. I hope you have your Bibles open. Because if you do, I want you to look at chapter 1 at the description. Daniel's description. He writes this for us. His description of what was happening here. I want you to specifically look at verses 2 9 and 17. 2, 9, and 17. And what you're going to see is a pattern at 2, verse 2, 9, and 17. That while the nation of Israel established under David has been dismantled, as Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's creating his own spectacular kingdom, Daniel writes, he boldly asserts, God gave. Three times in verses 2, 9, and 17, Daniel repeats his conviction, God still reigns that the Lord's kingdom still stands, that Yahweh, and not Babylon, is moving the wheel of history forward. You might ask yourself, how does Daniel know this? Where does this courage come from? And this answer bears listening to. Daniel knows this. He has this courage and conviction because of God's word. Out of Daniel's awareness and confidence in God's word, specifically the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Those prophecies function as a commentary, a guide in the midst of what was happening. Out of his awareness and confidence in God's word, Daniel knew that what had happened was exactly what God said would come. That what had happened was a consequence, a result of Israel's rejection and misrepresentation of God through her idolatry of God and her injustice toward others. This wasn't a surprise. It was the inevitable consequence of Israel's sin. Okay, Daniel could know that, but still, even if that's what it is on the surface of things, right? All things, Israel blew it. This is one big tragedy, right? This is one epic failure. But Daniel, knowing God's word, knew that God was in control, but Daniel also knew God had a plan. In fact, a 70-year plan. And this plan, pay attention to this, that Daniel knew from Jeremiah, from Isaiah, was not merely to discipline his people or judge an ungodly nation. God's plan was to offer a saving word through his covenant people. Time does not allow, but I want you to make a note on your app or in your Bible. You need to go later and read Jeremiah 29. I could point you other places, but that's the best place to go where you can see God just spelling out that this is exactly what's, he knows what he's, this is, yep, this is what's happening. This is the consequence, but he has a plan. And I'll give you a little teaser that God will say something that is shocking, had to be shocking to the people of Israel and certainly should be shocking to us. In the midst of exile, God says his plan, among other things, is the peace and prosperity of Babylon. What? You are where you are, and in where you are and through you, I'm going to bring the peace and prosperity of Babylon. In order, Daniel suddenly not only knows that God is in control, that God has a plan, but in being in God's word, he knows he has a purpose. Daniel realizes that to reveal the grace of his sovereignty and his providence, God needs his people in Babylon as witnesses. Witnesses that he alone, the Lord alone, is king and that his kingdom endures forever. I want to be real clear to you, and you're going to see this throughout the book. Daniel did not understand everything. 
He didn't always understand everything, what God was doing or how. But Daniel knew that Babylon was exactly where he and his friends were supposed to be. Exile and suffering did not discourage or deter Daniel's conviction that through their faithful witness, God would ultimately protect and nurture them in Babylon. That the Lord could do the unimaginable, bringing good out of evil, redemption out of loss, and ultimately homecoming from exile. I have no biblical basis for this, but I think besides being rooted in God's word in Isaiah and Jeremiah, I also like to think that perhaps Daniel remembered the story of Joseph in Egypt as well. Do you remember the story of Joseph, the story of another exile, who at the hands of his brother's betrayal found himself as well in a strange and hostile land? And in that story, what does Joseph discover? What does Joseph hold on to? That God is with him, and Joseph prospers. And if you don't remember the story, remember this. At the very end, Joseph, when he's confronted by his own brothers, right? says to them, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good. Daniel believed that God was in control. Daniel believed that God had a plan. Daniel therefore believed he had a purpose. Beloved, I ask you this morning, do we believe? The experience of exile, that experience of displacement and disorientation, that moment of loss, that enduring of suffering, that reveals where our functional hope and ultimate trust are placed. My friends, where does your help, your perspective, your hope come from? From whom or to what do we run to find security and refuge and comfort? Is the Lord our possession and strength in times of trouble? Some of you said yes out loud. I hope the rest of you said yes silently in your heart. Some of you may have been waffling a little bit. And that's okay. Because the other thing I have to ask you, right out of the example of Daniel, is that maybe if your belief is struggling, the next question is equally important. Are you in the word? Daniel was in the word of God. He knew what he knew because he was rooted in what God said. If you're not in the word, and if your faith is struggling, may I suggest there is a relationship there. Because the Bible proclaims, and it bears repeating, faith comes by hearing the word of God. Faith is not something you manifest yourself. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. We call out scripture and worship. We basically repeat God's words back to him. You said, you promised, this is who you are. This is who we are. Faith comes by hearing the word of God over and over and over. Do you know this? God tells us, the word of God tells us not to be afraid. Do you know that? Over and over and over again, the word of God tells us not to be afraid. Repeatedly throughout his word, the Lord assures us in a variety of circumstances, both big picture and individual, that he is with us and for us. He is with us and for us even when we are not with and for him. In fact, God is so with us and for us even when we are not with or for him that that very word that he declares, that he speaks, becomes flesh and blood in Jesus Christ. Do we take God at his word? Our strength our courage, our help, our direction, our orientation in the midst of exile come from the revelation, the knowledge of a God who is not aloof, who is not distant, who is not uninvolved, who is not passive in the events of this world. How God works, we do not always know, 
but that God is at work, working in us and through us, for us, to do more than we can imagine or even hope for. Of this, we can be sure. Do we believe? Are we in the word? Do we stand on the word of God? Many of you are saying yes, and if I start to talk about the upcoming election, let's see what you say. If I talk about something particular in your life that's not going exactly according to your plans, how strong is that yes? Daniel's belief, his knowledge of God's word and his reliance upon it led, as we see in chapter one, to specific responses in terms of what he was facing. This is important. We can all say we believe, and that's great. And I'm not downplaying that at all. We come here every week and we say, we believe. But belief is real when it is expressed through trust. And trust is actual, my friends. Trust is not intellectual or emotional. Trust is actual. And what we see here is Daniel expressed his conviction. He walked by faith, not by sight. He lived out of his trust in God and his word through tangible actions. Nebuchadnezzar's indoctrination program had three components to it. A name change, an education, and a diet. A name change, change, an education, and a diet. Now, to take this apart real quick for you, because we do things a little differently, back then, a person's name bore witness to the God in whom they believed. We name our kids all kinds of things now. Apple, tree, forest, whatever. Back then, you named your child specifically to identify the God in whom they believed. This is even among, not just within Jews and uh, Jewish people, among pagan nations. And that helps you to understand why this is part of the indoctrination program. Changing the name of Daniel and his friends by Nebuchadnezzar was an act of rebranding, of changing, Dan changing Daniel and his friends' understanding of who they were and whom they belonged to. The educational program involved becoming well-versed, as the scriptures tell us, in the language and literature of Babylon. Meaning they were to understand, to learn and understand the various religious beliefs, the myths, the legends, the astrology, the laws, and the codes around which Babylonian life was formed and centered. They were to understand it so well they could speak about it. They could speak the language, speak in such terms. Those are the first two parts of the indoctrination program. What I want you to notice if your Bibles are open, because it's quite fascinating to me, notice Daniel and his three friends do not object to their pagan names or to the secular education that they're given. What I want you to see, in terms of how we respond, how we live out that trust, is that Daniel and his friends do not withdraw, but engage the culture, the strange new world around them. Daniel and his friends do not do so blindly or indiscriminately. They do so by faith, out of the confidence they have both in the sovereignty of God and their relationship to him. For Daniel, being given a new name cannot touch or alter his true identity as one of God's people as declared by the Lord himself. Daniel's true name, which meant God is my judge, Daniel means God is my judge, underscored his inward conviction that in body and soul, no matter what Nebuchadnezzar called him, he belonged to another kingdom and not to Babylon. Daniel and his friends do not resist or fear learning a new language or being exposed to the literature of Babylon because they were grounded in the eternal word of God. 
The scriptures and commands of the Lord were their foremost reference point to filter and give them discernment and wisdom. In fact, if your Bible is open, and this is awesome, if you read verse 17 in chapter 1, something that you notice is God actively, actively gives them knowledge and understanding in the midst of their Babylonian education. God gives them understanding. What I want you to see, my friends, what I'm hitting hard, is Daniel and his friends demonstrate, and they're going to continue to do it throughout this book, that trusting in the Lord, believing God is in control, that the Lord has a plan, that we have a purpose, ought to lead us to engage and not withdraw from the world around us. To engage and not withdraw from the world around us. We are to be, as the scriptures say, in the world, but not of the world. And this means remaining culturally literate and actively participating in our neighborhoods and communities. And frankly, as we are more and more in exile, we keep ourselves in exile because we have had this growing habit of creating our own Christian subculture. Our own conclaves where this is where we're real. This is where we do community. And biblically, you have no precedent for this. No precedent for that to be the only place you occupy, the only space you call home. If Daniel's not enough for you, go straight to the Great Commission. We are to go out into the world to engage the culture, to share the gospel, to point to the kingdom, to represent Christ. We are to become good interpreters of the society, the workplace, the world around us, so that we can better discover how we might best communicate and reflect God's truth and love within those environments. You can't speak the language, you can't engage the culture if you don't know it, if you're not in it. On a very, very individual level, if you keep trying to share Jesus, the Bible, the gospel, just coming to church with friends of yours who won't have nothing to do with Jesus or the church, and you don't know anything about their lives, anything about what they believe, anything about where they're coming from, you are going to continue to hit a brick wall. By the way, you're also going to give them a nice couple of smacks in the face. Daniel and his friends show us that we live out our trust in God by engaging the culture. Now, I know for many of us, we get part of why we've retreated, part of why we withdraw, part of why we've created our own little conclaves of, of subculture of Christianity is we're afraid that we'll be led astray. We're afraid that we'll be, on, you know, we'll, it'll water things down. Beloved, look at the witness of Daniel. As long as we remain rooted in our identity in Christ— as long as we keep and treasure the word of God, the Bible. That's why you gotta be in the word, people. As long as the word of God becomes our foremost filter and lens, we don't have to retreat. We don't need to be afraid of engaging the world around us. But if those two things are not in place, if your identity is not secure in Christ, if that's up for grabs for you, then be afraid. If you are not in the word, if you do not know the word of God, if you are still living off of what you learned in Sunday school as a child, be afraid. But if you are in the word of God, if that's your lens and your filter to everything else that comes at you, if you are rooted and secure in your identity in Christ, not what you do, not what you've done, but what Christ has done for you, what Christ declares about you, you do not have to be afraid. You do not have to withdraw. In fact, you are called to engage. But Daniel also shows us in this first chapter that engagement is not the same thing as assimilation. Daniel doesn't object to the name change. He doesn't object to the education. But we do notice that Daniel eventually faces a crisis of conscience. A line that as a follower of the Lord and as a representative of God's kingdom, he cannot cross. And this line was his new diet. The daily portion of food and drink 
that he was now provided. It came straight from the royal table. I don't know if you caught that. So no doubt the provision of this food and drink was an indication of the favor of the king as well as part of the indoctrination program. But Daniel here resolves, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself, we're told. Not to live off such a diet. We don't know exactly how Daniel perceived he would be defiling himself by accepting the food. There's all kinds of theories about this. My God, someone wrote a book, The Daniel Plan, that this is, you can go on Daniel's diet and lose weight. I don't think that was the point of the book of Daniel. I don't think Daniel was saying, hey, you want to lose a few pounds and be healthier, do this. <laughs> Sorry, if that's working for you, God love you, but I don't think that's the reason why Daniel wrote the book. But we get all caught up in why did Daniel, what, why did Daniel not eat the food and drink? It could, have been that he, it could have been he was concerned about Levitical food regulations and requirements. It could have been that he was about, concerned about idolatry, that if he consumed wine and drink that most likely had been dedicated to the Babylonian gods, that would be a, not a good thing. Heck, perhaps, and I like this one, perhaps Daniel believed if he and his friends ate the king's food, followed the diet, their better health and increased stamina and better minds would be credited to the Babylonian gods. And so therefore, to not eat the food and drink and still reach peak performance in their physicality and mental, mental ability would reveal their power came from elsewhere, from the strength and presence of Yahweh. We don't know. Whatever their reasons, what I want you to see, whatever their reasons for being selective in their diet, it's important to observe the positive and submissive nature of their resistance. I really want to hit those words, the positive and submissive nature of their resistance, because this can speak to us. What I want you to see, if your Bible's open, is the respectful and reasoned approach of Daniel's protest against his diet. Interestingly, Daniel seeks to fulfill the goals of his superiors, right? He seeks to fulfill their goal. Their goal was better health and appearance. Daniel doesn't argue against that. Better health and appearance. He seeks to fulfill the goal of his superior, yet he also maintains his own purity and integrity in his relationship with God. He holds those two, th those two things in tension. Notice also, while the chief palace official declines Daniel's petition, and this is interesting, right? Because we're told the chief palace official was actually has this God-given favor for Daniel. Even though he has this God-given favor, when Daniel makes his petition, the chief palace official declines. He admits openly his fear of retribution. Notice Daniel doesn't force the issue, right? Daniel doesn't force the issue. He doesn't stage a scene or disparage anybody. Daniel continues to pursue a solution, not rushing ahead on his own, but still looking to get permission. Do you see this? This time from the one who's directly in charge of he and his friends, the guard who watches over them. And there's this 10-day trial period of eating nothing but vegetables and having water rather than the rich meat and wine. And it's proposed and it's accepted. And 10 days later, as you heard, the health and strength of Daniel and his three musketeers was better in appearance and fatter in the flesh than everyone else. They surpassed everyone else. The results, in fact, were so stark, so obvious, I love this, the guard took away all the rich food of the king and substituted it with the, Dan the diet Daniel had proposed. My friends, what do I want you to hear this morning? What do I think Daniel shows us? Sometimes we need to take a stand for God. We have that crisis of conscience. I don't want to back away from that. Sometimes we need to take a stand for Jesus. But what we learn from Daniel, church, hear me this morning. What we learn from Daniel is our witness for Christ doesn't have to be arrogant, hostile, or antagonistic. It doesn't have to be arrogant, it doesn't have to be hostile, and it doesn't have to be antagonistic. A humble, 
respectful and reasoned approach in the name of Jesus can work and is often a witness of its own for the kingdom of God. Like Daniel and his friends, we don't have to make a public spectacle. And frankly, church, we're really good these days at making public spectacles. When we get our nose out of joint, we're good at making a public scene about it. But like Daniel and his friends, we don't have to draw attention to ourselves. And my God, we're good at drawing attention to ourselves. We moan and we cry and we wail about our rights that are being taken away and all the things we're unhappy. Just wait, we're a couple of months away from Christmas and you're all going to start complaining about how we can't take Merry Christmas anymore. But Daniel and his friends show we don't have to be pointing and drawing attention to ourselves. Like Daniel and his friends, we can give the glory to God by letting the results of God's presence and influence in our lives speak for itself. That's your witness. Not the, the, not the, the protests that you make, the spectacle that you make, the ultimate witness that you have to the sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that God has a plan, and that you have a purpose, is by being transparent Humble, respectful of reflecting God's presence and influence in your life, letting it speak for itself. That's what we see here. And how did those results, what kind of witness were Daniel and his friends? Do you catch this at the end? This is, this is awesome. Those results spoke powerfully. Daniel and his friends didn't have to say a word. Three years later, we're told, Daniel and his friends graduated at the top of their class. They graduated at the top of their class. It says, in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which Nebuchadnezzar questioned them, they're grilled by the king himself, he found them ten times better than everyone else in his kingdom. That's not, you know, slightly better. That's like off the charts. It's like send everybody else home. And in case you missed it, this powerful witness isn't just within the lifetime of Nebuchadnezzar. There's this last line in chapter one that might seem like a throwaway, but it's really, really important. Look at this. We are told, living well into his 80s or 90s, Daniel's ministry would extend the entire 70-year Babylonian captivity into the reign of the Persians. Do you understand what I'm telling you? Daniel's witness lasted longer than the person who conquered his people. <laughs> My friends, Daniel's example this morning and throughout this book, he and his friends, is our shared call as well. It's our shared call in the midst of exile. Once again, in the app or on your sermon notes, there are these questions for you to reflect on, to dig deeper into this. To dig deeper into how we can appreciate Israel's situation. To dig deeper into how we can learn from Daniel's response. And as you reflect on those later, I just want to close giving you my thoughts. One more time. In these chaotic and often exilic times of our own, and we are living in chaotic and exilic times, rather than moaning and groaning about everything that's changing all around us, or complaining again and again about what's wrong in this world and in our lives, let us, like Daniel, believe God is in control, that God reigns, that his kingdom is real. Let us remain convinced that the Lord has a plan, a plan we understand, frankly, better than even Daniel did, because we understand it through Jesus Christ, who in bearing our sins on the cross, conquered the ultimate exile we face, which is death. My friends, let us actually talk about redemption. Let's talk about restoration. Let's talk about reconciliation. Let's anticipate resurrection. 
and let's out of this saving and healing relationship with Jesus, our belief and trust that Christ is the king over all earthly kings of this world, whoever gets elected in November, let us, like Daniel, not withdraw, but engage the circumstances and relationships, our Babylons, around us. Let us seek to see every challenge put before us as an opportunity for God to reveal the truth of his grace and the power of his love through us to others. Let us seek to be an influence rather than to just assimilate in perceiving those opportunities to hear God's call to stand out from the crowd. Let's stand out from the crowd, people. But let's not stand out to shame or discourage others, but let's stand out to make a positive and constructive difference through our witness in other people's lives. And may our witness for the good of others coming out of our purity and integrity in Christ always be humble. Always be humble. Respectful of others and giving the glory to God by pointing to Jesus and his kingdom. Amen.